0: Welcome to another edition of Consensus Unreality. If you have found yourself in the past year wondering, where is Consensus Unreality? What happened to CU? Were they swarmed by the men in black? Swallowed by rogue vortexes? No. You've been missing out big time. Join patreon.com consensusunreality, where we have been and continue to post regular episodes, interviews, and written content We also host a private Discord server with all of our patrons. Subscribe for just $5 a month and don't miss a single second of the weird and wonderful world of Consensus Unreality. That's patreon.com slash consensusunreality. Now enjoy the episode. Census Unreality. Um, we are joined today by a very, very special guest, Dan Dutton. Uh,
1: yeah, welcome, Dan.
0: My, welcome my, back. My pleasure to later. be here with you again.
1: A returning guest and mm-hmm. yes. our first guest in.
0: You know you're not uh, hitting us if they ask you back. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> <yes. laughs> And uh, yeah, if I if if you see me get up from screen, it's because I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take a pee probably because I feel like this is gonna be a nice lengthy interview. Uh, I, I will try I will try to hold you till your bladder screams. <laughs> <laughs> Uh And uh, Dan has uh, given given us permission to use some. Um, snippets of uh his music in this episode so we are delighted to mix that in and we'll have some images uh documentation of dan's um, artworks and performances of some of his operas and yeah we're very excited to, to to have some of that stuff in there um yeah so i i mean uh i've got some interesting questions here and and you know, if you didn't listen to the first interview we did with Dan, um, definitely a good idea to check that out. Nice, lengthy interview. And I think we're going to try and double back into some, some interesting territory this time as well. Um, yeah. I feel like I've got a good question to start with. It's kind of a macro question. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I did write it down um, and I wanted to ask you, uh, how would you characterize the soul of America? Wow.
2: (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, I'll start off by tackling this word America. America properly means the continent. It's it's themselves, North America and South America, you know. Um, This sort of came to my attention in an odd way because I was friends with a curator, Larry Ringer, who was the curator at the at the Whitney Museum of Art um, back some years back. And he brought this issue up because the Whitney was supposed to be the Museum of American Art, right? That's what it's called. And yeah, he, he got actually tossed out in part because he dared put on a show which he called the American Effect, which was a, a show of what people in other countries thought about America, the art right. they made about America you know, and uh, never really thought before how quickly we assume that America means us, but we don't think about Mexico and Canada, you know, as being part of America, too. So that's kind of an interesting thing. So we'll talk about the United States of America, their soul, because the soul of America, I would think, would have to mean Canada and Mexico, too. And I'm just too unfamiliar to represent. But when it comes to the United States, I guess, you know, dandelion has uh, officially amicable relations with the United States (laughs) of America. I mean, we are a sovereign state. Um, here. I say we in the plural as an affectation. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we are a sovereign state and we do recognize the legitimacy of the United States of America, you know, especially since they carry such a big stick and and, and tend to show it all the time. <laughs> uh, you you have to keep that in mind when you're talking about them, not to, not to say anything that will make them irate. But at this point in time, it is an interesting place. I see a world in which youth holds great promise but is dangerously entranced with our methods of communication that we have at present, you know, to an extent that I have to wonder, you know how that might how might that might work out. I see some, I see some terrible, uh, we talked about dark, Dan. I see some terrible things that, um, like, okay. Barefoot people like me have get puncture wounds sometimes Mm -hmm. in your feet, you know, um, like the worst is to step on a nail or some bullshit like that. A piece of glass or a nail, a nail. I haven't done that since I was a kid, but I have done it before. I have stepped on a nail before those kind of wounds if you're an herbalist like me are ones that are so tricky to do anything about like clean them okay yeah clean it what does that mean you know you can only clean the surface the puncture goes down into there is there rust is there filth is there something that's been pushed inside of you and if like there are certain herbs that i use to cure flesh wounds with here like holy basil or yarrow which cause wounds to knit up really quickly. But that's not a good idea with a puncture wound. Like if you knit the surface of it over, you may trap the infectious aspect below the skin. You know, you've sealed off the top and now you've got this shit on un- that's, that's sealed under the skin. And that's what I think about the soul of America right now. Mm. There, there is some filth sealed under the skin of it and it's causing some infection, and the body politic itself, or the body of the, the, uh, of us as a community, if you know, of people as a community, we're sort of at a point at this point where that we either try to process and filter this poison internally, or we try to reopen the wound and, 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 clean it from the outside in and because of the way because of the hysteria that comes with social media which is our main way of communicating with each other now um everything's always turned to 11 you know ever since spinal tap nobody's ever turned anything to 10 everything's been to 11 ever since then so that's really the first thing people think put the wound open again and go back in but really i think Probably at this point, there's both things that have to happen. There's there's a lot of stuff that has to be processed in this country before things can move forward. And we're probably not going to process it. So <clears throat> we have to move forward with a lot of unprocessed stuff and all hmm. probability. But it's good to know that that is what is actually happening. I mean, you know, there's some realities here that uh, people came – to this country from other countries. And now we're starting to talk about the white people versus the not white people, the brown people, or you know here here there becomes a problem of a of language even. I, I know personally from having friends that most of the tribal people I know prefer to be described as being Indians if white people have got to talk about them and they can't say what tribe they're talking about the tribes themselves have this ordeal this land was forcibly taken these resources were forcibly taken from another people and that's an injustice and when you build your house on shifting sands you cannot have moral authority you know what I'm saying there's no moral authority Mm -hmm. coming until Something is some kind of of things are made right about that. So we have as a nation, uh, as a country, as a what is America, nation, country, or whatever, we have we have an issue there in that there are debts owed that are not being paid, and there are damages done that are not being recognized. And the same has follows true for, The resources that we have that cause us to be so powerful in what we do, much of them are uh, here because of the efforts of people, which the majority of the people here describe as others, otherness. Mm -hmm. And as speaking from someone who's on the far spectrum of otherness, Mm -hmm. you know, I haven't even agreed to this human thing. They keep throwing it up and offering it to me, but I don't know. (laughs) I don't know about this. I don't know. There's um, there's a lot there that I, I feel this every day in my work. A lot of what I'm able to do has to do with advantages that I have that are historically based on deprivations that other people have experienced because they were able to be described as others. Right. So we have a we have a melting pot. That's not quite melted. Right, right. Yeah. So the soul of America is in some pain. You know, I think everybody feels it. We're all feeling some of this uneasiness, some of this pain. And we're all seeing the froth on the surface of it. The froth, you know, part of the froth has orange hair and spouts, you know, all kinds of absurdities. Part of it is a turgid. Uh, resistance to uh, fluidity that would help modernity—is that what is coming into being? Would seem to prevent us from living fully in the moment, tethered to so much of the wrongs of the past. So maybe that's a rather a lot to answer about that about the soul of America. So having pointed out some of the negative parts, I do want to balance that because I'm a person who believes that harmonious balance and moderation sometimes, at least in all things is a good thing. So for some harmonious balance, I think it's a tremendously exciting and creative time, at least for arts. And that's just all I'm going to talk about from this point forward. I'm going to leave politics and, you know, social issues somewhat to the side to talk about art but for art now it's usually there are certain things that have to do with technology which are making musical possibilities for me as a musician and a composer that were difficult to attain in the past also my music which was completely opaque and ridiculous to people at the time that i was making it is beginning to be perceptible now and maybe even precious in some sense and that for me personally is very positive I see and talk with the young artists who are making things and I think that they're very sharp um and I know a lot of very intelligent and very creative people so I'm not at all as a matter of fact I loathe people who um Are like addicted to nihilism, nihilism, you know. Mm -hmm. Like they just have to take a shot of it every, you know, every time something. It's like those games (laughs) where you have to take one every a shot of nihilism every fifteen minutes or something. Other, and I'm not. I don't. I don't think that's at all uh, maybe fun for a while, but it's not at all positive thing for you to do in your life so i i see a lot that's really great there i see some some aspects in our contemporary culture calling bullshit in places that really helps clear some things up that should have been clear to begin with and that seems very very positive to me as an artist i mean i i like that aspect of things a lot From my own point of view, um, I'm not horribly oppressed right now, except the oppressions I do on myself every day for entertainment. I guess that's why I do them. But um, and I, I feel good about being able to make art, and I feel like I'm able to communicate with people. It's just as hairy as it ever was. I mean, you know, this is. I think that you know that you're that you're on the right path as an artist when you're having real some real struggles and real challenges (laughs) you know yeah like for me anyway at the point in time when i start feeling comfortable about something that's the time to ask some serious questions like you know what would it be like if you take this away you know what would you what, what, what this thing that's making you feel comfortable about art what if you take that out of the picture then what is there um so i like that I like that feeling, and I like that idea. So I'm going to say the soul of our nation is severely challenged right at the present. Yeah. Possibly, and it, possibly as much as it's ever been challenged, but maybe not. Possibly as much as it's ever been challenged. But this is precisely the challenge that human beings need in order to rise to the occasion. I mean, you know, it's really... Nobody gets through this thing without some challenges.
3: Yeah.
0: I mean, even inertia, even inertia and ennui are like overwhelming enemies. I think, uh, yeah, it's a very poignant answer. <clears throat> and I think you bring up some really interesting things in there. And I, I raised the question. The question came to mind like a while ago. Um, I was reading about American spirit tobacco and how the name was conceived right and um i think it was from either Heigel or heidecker said that the spirit of america was tobacco and i thought this was like kind of a funny question to ask somebody like you because i feel like your your art is transcendent but it is also quintessentially american in a way you know like you you are a uh, a national, like a an American folk artist, uh, in a lot of ways, and I, I thought that you would have an interesting answer there. And when you talk about those cultural debts that are owed and stuff, I think it's interesting how those things kind of get translated into the idea of like an American haunting, you know. And I think this is this is something that's kind of talked about with with the film The Shining and the way that Kubrick approached it as this as kind of encapsulating um, American atrocities and horrors, things like so abstract Mm -hmm. and stretched out into this compacted labyrinthian, you know, horror.
1: That's weird. I just read The Shining uh, like a week ago, the -hmm. book.
0: Mm.
2: Um, Yeah, that's really, uh, I mean, one of the things I think that is a, a sign of the times or an aspect of the times the labyrinth is uh, very much a, a symbol that resonates right now, and you know, I, I actually, I, when COVID was a a difficult uh, a difficult year for me because I got, I guess, long COVID. I'll never know for sure, but something got fucked up entirely that year with me health wise, and um, so there's like two years there of. Um, of a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of strangeness that i think maybe everyone experienced as you it's like where are the boundaries of society anymore what is touching another person about you know these were a lot of questions that i had worked with in the in the past um in the theater and working on the operas i had been there working and thinking about these very questions, but suddenly they the decisions about how they were going to operate were taken out of my hands and they became things that were operating from a totally, you know, now there was a virus in charge. Now there was the, the government in charge of this. Now there was our culture in charge of it where um, people were make these decisions about where the boundary lies is between us as people and who is included and who is excluded were suddenly being filtered from a totally different point of view and that definitely that definitely for me even though it was a difficult time it made some it allowed me to make some strides forward in my work that I'm not sure I could have conceived of otherwise mm,
1: yeah yeah yeah, COVID was so strange with most of all, I think, those boundaries between people and and cultural boundaries. Um, and I think that might even be what, to some extent, it's remembered for. It was the sort of uh, liquid nature of, of that time. Yeah, it was really strange. Um, when,
2: you, when you mentioned folk art, it's so interesting to me because, um, you know, I remember early on, as I began working, having all these curious titles applied to me, (laughs) that one. I mean, I decided I wasn't going to go to art school, wasn't going to go to college, even though I was advised to, I was lectured at to do it, I would have done it, I suppose, but. I'm such an imp of the contrary that I just, I felt like, well, wait a minute, why? Uh, <laughs> you know, why uh, should I do this? And is it really helping the art or is it just helping the status quo uh, in a way that it, then it became, if you don't do that thing, if you don't go through uh an agreed upon prescribed program of how you educate yourself as an artist or how you learn to make the things you make, then you're going to be one of these things. And I was called all of these things. I was called a primitive artist. (laughs) And I thought primitive, okay. Well, I like the sound of that because, you know, that's like at the beginning, right? You know, it's like primal, primitive, primary, all these things are at the beginning of process. So yeah, that's true. I I feel like that in what I do, I try uh, to get to the beginnings of things. Um, And so that was, that one was okay. Um, Autodidact. That (laughs) was okay. I'm I'm just not even going to go there because that's too complicated, but if you say so. (laughs) <laughs> but I didn't really teach myself entirely. I did learn myself entirely, but I had mentors and I had sources and I even had a process and a program. I mean, to a certain degree, I learned about art in a very old-fashioned way because my introduction coming from very rural world and not having, you know, professors or anyone to to tell you what you should do or what you should look at. I sort of looked at the artists that I thought were highly accomplished uh, ones, able to draw and paint and sculpt in the ways, and compose in the ways that I was interested in doing it. And um, I looked at how they learned to do what they did. Well, the artists of the Renaissance, they were apprentices. They started as apprentices in... You know the the workshops of painters that they admired, and mm-hmm. that's what the Chinese say. You know, they're like, choose one of the ancient masters is work you admire, and copy it until you you become an artist. Mm. You know, that's the way you do it. You just keep copying, and eventually you will you will learn how to do it. So I did some of that copying. You know, I I drew I drew uh i made drawings from the paintings of titian and caravaggio and michelangelo and the other artists that at the time that i admired i tried to you know sort of like see if my drawing skills were there or not and i did all the things too that that you would do in an old fashion like a <laughs> Classical drawing course where that you try to learn to draw, you know, by looking at things and drawing them so that I would get the skills. That was the one of the reasons I didn't go to art school and got these titles is because I spent, when I was a teenager and in my 20s, I was quite devoted to what I was doing. There was a rule then that I had to do one accomplished drawing every day. Um, and if I missed a day, I had to do two the next day. So I actually worked much more uh, devotedly then than I do now. Now I'm just like Donald Trump. I say, I do it in my head. <laughs> you know, a straw in my head and it's and it's done. But in those days, I actually was training my hand, you know, how to do things. So I was called a folk artist too, but I'm like, when do you people use the word folk? They yeah. never, they're never talking about themselves. It's always a condescending word. Like, they're, they're fine artists and they're folk artists. And I thought, well, that's kind of condescending. Until I got in the folk world of music, like the world of folk music. And, I mean, I guess it's true of all genres, but people are very exclusivist and elitist. In every way. And, you know, the folk people
0: are the same way. You're not pure enough.
2: Just because I listened to one Brian Eno record.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think that that whole thing, the nomenclature, the genre is something very interesting. Like I know that folk, the the idea of folk art is always equated with self-taught and outsider art. But to me, you know, when I when I would say folk art, I think it's more having to do with a relationship to, you know, regional culture and things like that i think like experimental yeah. is one of those terms too where it it no longer means what it originally meant it just kind of describes something as a as a useful blanket term um it's interesting how those things kind of get obscured over time
2: you know i was really a sort of a junior scientist when i was a child too i really believed in the scientific method I'm, um, you know, I'm a little more skeptical now that I've seen it demonstrated at length, but but I do think that in my art, I've thought of myself as uh, the subject of an experiment. Hmm. Um, I think you know that's where what you're talking about, the the folk aspect becomes strong beyond the fact that I'm that I've come out of a regional culture that has shaped, My language, my ideas, uh, my the environment I live in, the social interactions, what is considered right and wrong—a whole lot of things—are there? Are about place. They're about a certain place. More than that, in my work, I'm about an ecosystem. I'm about a very specific ecosystem, and it's one that's centered right on this one little hill in the knobs of Kentucky it's a distinct ecosystem if you look through my work if you couldn't see the entirety of it you would see what the plants and animals and people of this area are like at least seen through the eyes of this particular subject you know uh you can call me petri dish number 31 <laughs> you know that's the one where this experiment is growing and blooming and part of it has had to do with me having a devotion to this place and to this ecosystem and the and being an equitable member of it you know like i'm just one thing here on this particular hill at this particular time there's some giant old nearly old growth trees that are extremely important they maintain the temperature and everything else. There are a lot of creatures, a lot of plants. I grow most of my food. And so, you know, everything is very interlocked here. And but with my art, much of it evolved through travel. It evolved through seeing what happens whenever a creature that lives in this ecosystem ventures out into the others. Mm-hmm. And what happens then? What is that like? Because not everything that lives here in this ecosystem I live in stays here all year round. You know, there are birds here that go to South America in winter and come back in the summer right here to this same hill again and again. And I'm kind of an example of that too. I mean, I spent a good portion of my life traveling all over the globe, you know, all around the planet several times um, in different places. Picking up what that was like and what those systems were like and also sort of feeling like what are the strengths that I bring from the place I come from and what are the weaknesses I bring from the place I I come from. All those things kind of were revealed to me in that process and I brought them back here and wove them into this tapestry that I'm making here. Mm-hmm. So you know, I I, I think um, one of the most interesting amongst the titles, there was primitive artist, folk artist, um, autodidact, and then. Uh, I'm trying to think of this term. Um, it's it's one that would have to do with you being mentally ill. I mean, the art of the mentally ill was one of the first areas that I began to seriously study. Yeah, try to understand what was what my own perception was about. That's like a savant, idiot savant. That was the title uh, yeah. that that struck me the strongest. I was like, oh great, I've like made the top of the list, idiot <laughs> savant. Um, you know, <clears throat> I felt like Iggy Pop. At that point. <laughs> and time i think all these are interesting ways that someone tries to categorize someone else because there's a hierarchical aspect that's working and you know as amazing as academia can be to accomplish certain things and i i utilize it i work with it in my own ways a lot of it wouldn't have made sense to me like if i had if I had tried to study using um, using the systems that exist, like the university system, the college system, to study, who would have known, as a painter, that I needed to study linguistics? Mm. I really need to understand what Proto Indo European was. You know, that wouldn't have been in the course syllabus. So. Yeah. For me, I had to absorb the things that I needed to make the things I was gonna make. And I had to choose those. And the result was is that, um, like I say, nowadays, the world is more open to the kind of artist that I am. Um, and the kind of artist that I was then, I think it's a little bit more open to it. But during the time that I was coming up, it was just opaque and ridiculous. <laughs> You know, the things I did were ridiculous. I think people more or less felt they were just like crazy. They couldn't ignore them some what entirely because they had enough heft and enough complexity. I managed to I managed to lure in enough people involved in them and get enough done with it that you couldn't entirely ignore it, even though they wanted to ignore it. I, I do think generally speaking that the culture I came up in would have preferred to ignore my own.
0: Hmm. Um, Possibly ignore me too, as well. I was an inconvenient person. Hmm. Do do you want to interject there, Ben, at all?
1: Well, yeah, I was wondering, um, this got me thinking about, uh, so I, I got that pan painting from you, which I adore. It's incredible. And we were talking about it like before you sent it to me and you were saying it was, uh, inspired to a certain extent by that artist, uh, Tiepolo, the yes. the Italian painter and stuff. And yeah, I was kind of, and which that sort of art, like you were just talking about really makes me think of like technique and like sort of, you know, the mastery of certain, uh, forms and compositions. Um, but then some of the other art that I see you post feels to me, I'm not a visual artist, but it feels to me more interested in evoking like a sort of spiritual or uh resonant kind of thing to it. Where do you see like the, how do you see those two aspects of, of an artistic practice playing off of one another, like the sort of formal aspect, but then also sort of the more uh, intuitive
3: side you know, there was a
2: um is a painter that that just made a comment the other day on something I posted. Uh, I posted a painting of a red-winged blackbird that I had met. I
1: saw that. Yeah.
2: Okay, so that painting, I um, there's a pond here. It's actually on my neighbor Richard's place, but it, it's kind of connected to Dandeland. <clears throat> and if, when you're driving out on the, on the little road, driving out of dandelion, you pass by this pond. So I passed by it, you know, not every day, but several times. And a weird history happened there. There was, there were some muskrats that got in there and they ate all of the, of the cattails. I don't know if you know this plant. that were growing <laughs> over the pond. They ate them all. They wiped them out there. And the red-winged blackbirds that were coming there were nesting in these cattails. I was like, where are they going to nest? Um, well, they found places in the, turns out, in the field and in other plants to build their nests, but they didn't have them to land on. I was very used to seeing, you know, going by and seeing these birds on mm-hmm. landing on There's a reed growing by the edge of the pond and I saw red-winged blackbird. It was the only thing sticking up high enough to be a place where you could land on it and sing and say you know hallelujah here i am (laughs) or whatever the blackbirds are saying when they make that amazing song and i would be driving by it and i would see this bird with the reed it was just strong enough to hold it up but it was bending it down you know Mm. And i saw it and i thought oh i need to get a snap a picture of that i my I never was such a camera devotee until cell phones that made them easy, portable, and small. But I think of it as being like an eyeball on a stalk. This is a snail or a slug reference. You know how yeah. snails have those eyeballs they can extend out on a stalk? Uh, yeah. Pull them back in. So I was like, that's what a cell phone is to me. It's like yeah. an eyeball on a stalk. You can <laughs> send it out. You can click, you can take an image of something and you can draw it back into your practice. And maybe you can look at it and there's something there that will help you make a painting. I don't like paintings that are, when people say, and they do say this sometimes when they see images of my work, they'll say, oh, that looks like a photograph, just like a photograph. Or someone even with that painting did confuse it with a photograph. (laughs) And- they were intending to give me the highest compliment. Right. But actually, I sort of dislike that. It's not yeah. it's not hard to paint photographs. Really, it isn't. You just have to be patient and diligent, mm-hmm. you know, to do that. Do it pixel by pixel. <laughs> It'll look exactly like it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So right, right. uh it does take some skill to begin to paraphrase the photograph and turn it into a painting. But that's not what I'm really interested in when I'm capturing things. Anyway, I saw this bird on this thing several times, but every time I was either with a friend, I was in a hurry to get somewhere. It's not in a place where you can really stop in the road safely and take a picture anyway. So it would be an image I would whiz past and I'd think, ah, that's a painting. I know I can paint that. I just need to snap a picture of it and finally I realized after like a dozen times of seeing it that I was not going to get a photograph of it and the time came around my muse said you're ready to paint paint and I had a canvas stretched and I was like okay I don't have an image to work from but I know what this looks like so I painted it entirely from memory Mm -hmm. um and it works, you know. It, I know enough about painting birds and painting plants and how to do that, that I was able to construct that artificially completely. You know what I'm saying? It was yeah. made out of whole cloth. <laughs> Nothing was actually there at all. And to some people it looked very much like a photograph once I had done it. That's not at all really the journey of how I got there to that place. Anyways, uh, complicated story, I know, but this painter came on and he's someone who was highly trained, uh, like a portrait painter, someone who went to, you know, uh, school and became very trained portrait painter. And he went, he made a nice comment about the painting. He said, "Um, you're, you're an interface between us and nature and it's always so beautiful and so poignant and I really that brought me back around to what was kind of really happening with the painting what he's talking about is the the feeling I guess the feeling is the word you would use there to describe it the feeling or the emotion that you have from Mm -hmm. seeing an image like that and it made me think about it. Oh yeah, a few people know this bird and they know the sound of this bird or maybe they don't even know it but the bird's spring singing in the springtime and there's something about that whole thing that um, strikes a note of hopefulness to people but also points out maybe how transient those things are, how temporal and how... And then it becomes about us, you know? Then it becomes about our life. Oh We we're beautiful, but we're we're transient too. We're not gonna last all that long. We're just a glimpse, we're just a flash of light. You know, it's like the French philosopher said, the photograph is just a flash of light of something which will never exist again. (laughs) It'll be gone. And that's been pointed out about my work before. How it is related to that idea of photography, even though maybe I'm just a maybe I'm just a meat-based
0: camera. Well, it's the it's the reverie too, right? I mean, the, the reverie is something that you've talked about before with Debussy and the influence of of Debussy in your work. Um, I'm also gonna I'm gonna slide in here a a listener question because I feel like it's a it's a good time. Um, oh. The beauty of the internet, too, is that we fielded a few listener questions for the interview. Um, so, yeah, this is a, this is kind of a two-part. Uh, this comes from listener Buckers and listener Cool Toad using their uh, handles. Um, but <laughs> you mentioned... I'm
2: all about some toads.
0: Yeah, right? And <laughs> you mentioned the muse. Um, so to you, where, where do you think creativity comes from? And what are your thoughts on channeled art? <laughs> <laughs> we're hitting you with the macro stuff right
2: oh, I love this question because uh, I've heard it before and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the same answer I mm-hmm. used then the first show that I did because um, I didn't come up through you know any sort of system I just came out of left field to these people, I approached an art museum when I was in my early twenties, this is in a university, uh, near I won't tell, I won't tell the name of the college, but I, I approached them and I was like, I'd like to do a show
3: of <laughs> work
2: in your art museum. And weirdly they agreed to it. And I was so naive and, un. Uh, Unschooled at the time that I used an exactly precise word for what I was doing. I called it a retrospective, which is something people usually do later
3: later
2: (laughs) rather than at the beginning. (laughs) But I had a lot of work. I had been working really hard for a long time and I had pieces that I thought were the best. And so, anyways, I was able to fill this art museum pretty much full. And it was because it was a university art art museum, part of it was, Part of the deal was, is that I do a question and answer session with the senior art students who were practically my age at the Mm -hmm. time, you know, so that was a little odd. They were there studying to go to school, and I was there showing in their art museum. Mm -hmm. The professor who was doing it set it up in this way, that they had to write their questions down on a slip of paper, give them to him, and then he would recognize them to stand up and ask the question. You know, and then I was supposed to answer it. So the first question was, where does your creativity come from? (laughs) And I have such a, you know, maybe it's like some slight Oscar Wilde gene of the perverse or something, an imp of the perverse. (laughs) My mouth opened and my barbed tongue came out and I said, well, there are two theories about that. One is that it's a divine gift from the creator of the universe. And the other is that it's a a severe sexual dysfunction. (laughs) I don't think this art professor likes my answer. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, that is our society's two theories of what, um, you know. I would describe it in a very different way, being a devotee of the cult of luxury, I guess I would, but as to where it comes from, uh, I use I use that Greek concept of the muse uh, only half comically mm-hmm. because it does seem to be somewhat real in my own life experience, not so much in the sense that I like envision my muse as being uh, an etheric woman or an etheric man that I talk to, you know. About what I'm doing. Like, have you got any ideas for paintings I could do? Yeah. You know, it isn't like that. Uh, instead, it's more like certain things come around at the, at a certain time. Um, mm-hmm. Different 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 great wheels of meaning are all turning, and at certain points in time, things line up. It's just like playing the one armed mm-hmm. bandit whenever you pull it and it comes up cherries all the way across, you know, cherries, cherries, cherries. In my art, I'm always watching for that. When is it going to come up cherries all the way across? And whenever it's not just one slot machine, but every one of the slot machines in the whole gambling casino all come up cherries at the same time, that's when you have a work of art. Mm. It's usually because you have devoted yourself to it in some way. So that does seem to work like the Greek model. Do you know what I'm saying? You devote devote yourself. You can personify this thing and say, why not? Personification is one of the things that artists do. You look at a rock, and it's a rock. You look a little harder if you're an artist, and it starts to look like it has an eye and a nose, you know? If I just chip it a little bit over there, it would have two eyes. Mm-hmm. I don't know those. Well, while we're about it, let's make the mouth. And the next thing you know, you're, you're making Michelangelo's dying slave, mm-hmm. a sculpture that I have a long interaction with. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. like, it's to personify something is part. You look at something long enough and it starts to look like turn into a mirror. It starts to talk to you. It's you talking to yourself. But this is the way you reach that place where you can talk to yourself. And uh, so mm-hmm. I think of my muse that way. So I would say, I'm going to have to say my creative creativity comes to use English in a strange way from deep within. From deep within. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also comes from outside of me. And it comes in the form of the elemental forces of nature, which are somebody sometimes embodied in culture, and sometimes they're embodied just in wind and rain and fire and rocks and stuff.
3: Hmm.
2: <gasps>
1: yeah, that's, that's great. Um, I'm, a, I'm a living
2: yeah. being, you know? I'm alive and I've got <laughs> my
0: senses are turned up to 11. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> I was going to follow that up. Um, It it seems that you, you live in this extra sensory state. um, And it it kind of made me curious if you ever kind of like hit the brakes and kind of induce like a demystification. If maybe you ever get overwhelmed by that kind of state. Uh, (laughs) Okay. I'll tell you a story about that. I'm a I'm a
2: plain francoofield, okay? first time that I left this country, I went to Paris. it was for art, you know I um uh, it was curious. I did a show and um uh, this was in Cincinnati, and a a very wealthy super rich crowd that, that I did this particular show of people. and one of the people that came to it bought some art, and they were like, uh, they became interested in what I was, and they couldn't believe I didn't have any education or any training or anything like that. It's so odd that people didn't give me any credit for all the studying that I did and all the work I did, but it doesn't matter at all, I guess, unless you have the papers to prove it, so anyways, this person who was, would be a patron, was a patron, um said i will you you're you're a great artist but you need to go you know you need you need training and i will pay for it all i will pay for you to go through the whole system do it and i'm going to set up for you to meet this museum curator you know the curator of the museum and the state and to you know to confirm what I'm saying and then you'll we'll do this so anyway I thought well I wasn't really interested in going to school at that point because I was very dizzy uh, but I thought okay to be polite I will go and do this thing and I was interested to talk to this the director of the school and the curator so I took a few of my works which they had asked me to bring with me and I went to meet with this guy and it Amazingly, this man was like such a such a real and generous person. In that he looked at what I was doing, and he said, uh, "I don't think that you need to go to art school." Which was, frankly, I'm sure that if the school could have heard him say it, they would have slapped his mouth um, for doing it. He said, "What? But what you need to do is you need to go to Europe and you need to look." at the works of the so-called old masters in person you know and he was very right about this so um i came back home and some friends had a yard sale and i sold everything i could think of and i got enough money to go to paris and i went there and i went to the louvre and i went to all the other museums in france and i went on to Rome and Florence and went to the museums there and I looked I spent three weeks doing nothing but looking at art until I couldn't stand like when I finally got to Florence to the Uffizi and I was went through it there were all these Raphaels and I was like if I see one more Raphael I will die I cannot cannot look at another one of these paintings and then I knew I was full you know and I could come back home and digest it. But anyways, I fell in love with France in the process. Really, really fell in love with France. I love it. I feel more comfortable there than I do in this country. Are we talking about the soul of this nation again? (laughs) Um, I feel more comfortable in France. A lot more comfortable than I do here. You know, as a person, I'm not going to move there. I used to have fantasies of, Living there for a year, maybe, but I probably won't even do that. But I love it, and I've been there nine times. So, about time number six or something like that, I was on the plane and I was flying uh, across to get there. And I was like, you know what, Dan, you're a much more sophisticated man than you were when you first went to France. You know, maybe this is time for you to take off those rose colored glasses that you have on. Ma vie en rose. take off the rose-colored glasses and see Paris is a city it's just a city like all the other cities I had by that point in time I had been to the a good portion of the big cities on the planet I was like it's a city it's look at it how about you take off the rose-colored glasses and just look at it as a normal place And maybe you'll see something you haven't seen before and, and maybe you know it's not all like so romantic as you make it out to be. And then when the plane landed and I stepped off and I breathed in the air, I was like, oh my God, I'm in love. <laughs> love. And I just gave up that aspect of ever seeing anything clearly. <laughs> <laughs> <It's funny. laughs>
0: I'm not sure how much that enlightens this conversation. <laughs> um yeah, I no, that does. And and that's funny. Uh, I kind of maybe expected something like that. And it's, it's a really beautiful answer. Um, I'm also curious, have you ever like used processes that maybe you considered to be like divinatory? Not just like it's all divinatory. You know, I know that that might be a possibility too. But have you ever used things that were structurally more like uh, you know, say a Ouija board or maybe tarot or something like that to kind of experiment with art. And, mm. and, and maybe, you know, the I Ching. I know you've talked about using the I Ching maybe as well. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Actually, in my artistic life, I've,
2: I suppose I've made divinatory systems a specialty. But I, I, the first I was, that I was attracted to very young was uh, actually astrology. And um, You know, and ultimately I wasn't going there because of the math, you know, it wasn't going to be a happening thing. But astrology is so rich with imagery, you know, maybe all of these processes are rich with imagery, but astrology is, I mean, there's the constellations, right? Which are drawings in the sky. Yeah. You know, these, these earliest ideas of how someone laying on their back looking up at the sky sees all these dots and they're like begin to connect them into things. And those things are, are animals or people, gods, um, stories, you know, the sky is suddenly full of stories. And so the imagery connected to astrology and the idea that things could be put in categories, but my art deals a lot with categories. It's how, it's, it's kind of the key to the city in one way, is once you begin to see things, that things are being, um, arranged in categories, that the totality of what I'm doing, I think, starts to make a little bit more sense, so astrology was first, and, uh, the I Ching was probably the next thing that I studied, and then I went deep into the tarot, I mean, I, I studied it a lot and finally came around to IFA, um, Mm -hmm. which is the Yoruba, the Nigerian um, Yoruba system of divination. And I don't know, I maybe mentioned this before. I'm like, I'm in the process of initiation into that cult. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I've been accepted into the process of initiation you don't complete your initiation till you get this little decision cut in your head and some herbs rubbed into it. And a lot of other things I'm being flippant about, um, the thing, but there's, so that's yet to come. I mean, I'm not sure whether I'll learn enough in my lifetime to get to complete my initiation, but that's something that you don't get to choose. You can approach the Oracle of EFA and EFA decides whether you're going to be initiated or not initiated, and how you're going to be initiated, or not initiated, so, um, one of the curiosities, when I got there, my uh, friend, Ajala Sangosankin, who, in that system, I should be calling my Baba, or my father in divination, my Bible, my Baba Awo, Awo means secrets, and Baba means father, so father of secrets is what mm-hmm. that, is. you remember when uh, Desi Arnaz sang Baba Babalo, babalo. Mm-hmm. that's what he was saying, mm-hmm. uh, and it, huh. uh, it's father of secrets, father of secrets. So, you know, whoever helps you through your initiatory process is called your Baba in that sense. Jala is younger than me, but he is sort of my father in that regard. And we first connected because I was interested in in plants, in herbal plants. And he was very early person on social media to post pictures of some of the Nigerian plants that are used in IFA. And hmm. I, I connected up with him and I asked him a lot of questions and he was so generous to answer all my questions. After a period of time, you know, months or longer, he was like, are you just interested in asking questions or do you want to be initiated? Hmm. Um, I said, Well, I don't know what it is. So if you can tell me, tell me what it is, and maybe I am interested in it. So, you know, he explained to me the process that first the first thing is that the oracle would need to be consulted to see whether um, you know whether I was a candidate for initiation. And the reason I came to, to be, um, to Aoife at all, to the Yoruba system of Orishas and divination, I had met a Yoruba woman, a storyteller, who stayed in my studio. And she was kind of, she was amazed and a little shocked by my, my studio and my lifestyle here. I guess the fact that I had built my studio out of wood that came from a carriage barn from a f- 1800s funeral carriage barn, like the horse-drawn hearse and mm. and embalming table and everything, were in this barn. You know that the that's the wood that I used to do it. I don't know exactly how she picked up on the fact that that was the case, but she walked in my studio and she looked around and she she actually tisk tisked at me. Um, and she got out this brazier and burned all of this incense. She had her daughter with her and she stayed up all night long chanting and burning incense to try to mediate with all of these ghosts, I guess um, that she felt that the building had or represented. And uh, the next day she said, the Rishas must love you because they'd kill anybody else that tried this shit. And, um, And uh, I didn't really understand entirely what she meant by that at the time. But one thing I talked about her with is I was having a lot of trouble with static electricity. This is going into a weird zone, but everything I touched would shock the crap out of me. Like if I touch metal, especially in the winter, I don't mean a little static electricity shock. I mean, like an electric fence pot, you know, something that I never touched metal I would pull my shirt sleeve down over my hand, you know, so that I wouldn't touch anything metal when I had to open car doors or open doors, I would pull my sleeve over my hand because if I didn't, I would get the crap shocked out of me. and she said, "Oh, these are the kisses of Shango, and they're a sign that you need to be initiated. So I was like, "I don't even know how." and she hooked me up with a. Her Baba, who was in New York City at the time, and we talked on the phone, and he was helpful to me in a sense, but he was not connected to the Risha Shango that that I actually was what I needed to get connected to. And Ajala was, my friend Ajala was. So when he consulted the oracle for me to see whether or not I could be initiated And you have to understand that I think for the Yoruba, there's a little bit of a stretch for a white person, maybe.
1: Mm. You know? yeah.
2: I don't know. Not so much from the Yoruba. In America, it's very much a stretch, you know, I think. But um, anyways, uh, as it turned out, I was accepted for initiation, not into one Arisa, but to three Arisa. Shango is a Arisa of lightning and in some ways is, is, is a, you could say he's like Pan, Hmm. you know, it's just like the Nigerian concept of Pan, maybe. Uh, The other one was uh, Eshu, which is a little bit like, um, Eshu is the crossroads, Arisa, like uh, the, what's called the devil in American blues, but more like Hermes, you know, uh, 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 a telephone god, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a connector, Mm -hmm. a connector thing. So those two didn't actually, it surprised me that there were two, you know, because that's a lot of responsibility to learn something like that. But the third one really floored me, and that was for Etha itself, and that's the sign that comes up when someone's supposed to become a diviner. You know, and I knew there was no way on earth in my lifetime I would be able to learn enough to use the IFA system to divine with. You know, it's big and it's complex and it's quite a bit more complex than the tarot. And I don't know if I could say it was more complex than the I Ching, but it's a lot to memorize. And it is a mnemonic system too, one that you have to memorize. So I thought, well, this is really sweet (laughs) of the riches to be so accepting, but (laughs) they have no idea what rough material they're working with here because I just don't think I'm gonna be able to pull this off in my lifetime. I still don't. But but that being said, I feel like every time I paint is a divining act. You know, every time I paint or compose, it's a divining act. I'm opening some aspect of myself up to the unknown, to chance. Um, I mean, you know, you can be really slick about how you control a brush when it hits the canvas. But there's actually so many variables at work there that mm. that you you're really plunged into the realm of the unknown. It's like, I think then... It's almost as though the nature of your being, and I wanna, I mean, I'm it would be crazy for me to say your moral content, but in some ways, I guess I do believe that's true. That you have to have a certain nature to you, you have to have made certain, you have to devoted yourself to processes that are good. Um in order to be able to plunge into this. Environment that would cause anything that wasn't cohesively held together to just dissolve. Mm -hmm. And I often feel that way whenever I get really in the zone creatively. I come out of it, I'm like, my atoms are coming apart. Yeah. You know, I'm literally like, I feel like I'm drifting apart, like I'm a cloud that is dissipating because nothing can hold it back together again. That's because I've been in this other world where things are not held together the way they are held together here. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. you don't have the same things to fall back on. Up isn't up, down isn't down. <laughs> light isn't light and dark isn't dark. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. No, it's like talking about the mysteries, the Greek mysteries, the my- the mystery, uh, you know, the mysteries of, El- of Elusos, the mm-hmm. You know, everybody knew what they were nobody could say what they were huh. yeah. you can't speak it it can't be spoken yeah he said <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: ask the question i try and obviously to tether it to our loose becoming looser theme of the occult and the paranormal although we've kind of just been drifting further and further but that's always there but at the same time i kind of recognize obviously that art in itself is a divinatory practice right yeah
2: you know this is a point maybe to reinsert, reinsert your first theme of the of the soul and the soul's journey um in that um I do see this point in time. Many people are interested in all these things that have these titles, the paranormal supernatural. I was trying to explain to someone earlier today, how it's a fine point. Maybe better not to call it the supernatural, but the supernatural uh, in the sense that what I do is part of an ecosystem. It is very natural. It's like, that's my job in this thing is to be a, the divinatory uh i am a ouija board i don't use a board board.
3: i'm
0: a
2: fucking planchette
0: yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, right exactly yeah yeah
2: so um yeah i do see this interest that people have now i'm not dismissive about it even though oftentimes it goes into frankly coopville for Mm -hmm. all of us i mean i probably every day there's a moment i have a that I'm like, this is Cook- this is Cookville. There's too much synchronicity happening, yeah. um, you know. Or wait a minute, this is something. There's something here that is not the official explanations of mm. what is here, uh, and it's not being seen because the explanations are in the way. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 They're the thing they're the screen they're the fog the 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 thought patterns the sentences the words and then i'm like it's the language that's guilty the linguist in me says okay uh neural pathways that form words sentences phrases and meaning in it are things that we encode into our brain too we're encoded with the english language if we speak english for instance and so we'll have what many languages have, we'll have a valorized content for the ideas, for instance, of light and dark, mm-hmm. where light will be positive and dark will be negative. Yin and yang, male and female, everybody loves it. It's so neat. It's <laughs> so binary. It's so digital. It's so one and zero. Um, I remember every time I think about that, Laurie Anderson's quip about how in the digital language, everything's either a number one or a zero it doesn't leave much room in between for the rest of us, yeah so you know i I feel that um see at present how that people's interest in what's called the paranormal the supernatural all these things that are that um Is it science? I don't think it is. Isn't science that's willing to dismiss this all quickly and shove it under the table? I think it's something else happening in our culture that really can't be called science.
0: Yes, Mm -hmm. yes, absolutely. Uh,
2: That's Um, so. You know, I resist it. I resist that, and I and I applaud the people who are seekers. Okay, maybe the language is there. Using our funky clunky compared <laughs> to what? Because I, you know, what's more funky clunky than academia speak?
0: Yeah. Yeah, you get, you get a, something really interesting there. Um, what I see as kind of being endemic of our culture now is this drive, this inclination towards the superimposition of narrative uh coming fr- you know because of the internet too like the the superimposition of narrative coming from disparate places um and that drive towards pattern recognition but it it starts to get away from the actual experience the actual experiential and, and how personal how vague how abstract that can be um how rich yeah absolutely
1: yeah that it kind of brings to mind the uh What's your, your position on the whole AI art thing, which is like something that a lot of artists are either concerned about or not.
2: Glad you asked this question <laughs> of the moment. Um, well, um guilty. I'm guilty. I've, I have, I have participated. Um, oh,
1: sure. Yeah.
2: Um, and so here's my thoughts about it from the first time that it sort of came up as a thing that could be seen anyway in social media. Yeah. And I'm sure you remember all these paintings that are prints that you could buy of AI-generated things. First, they were being sort of advertised. And mm-hmm. actually, I I ran into it at some point in time some extremely academic thing where that, um, maybe this is out of China too, where someone was... was trying to make a children's story about an AI that was a composer, that was Mm -hmm. composing music. Little AI composes his first music, which curiously sounded like uh, atonal beat-bloop music. You know, It's like, okay, junior AI. (laughs) But I I remember seeing these paintings, which were the ones, and still all of the ones I would say, the curiosity was, is that they all look like a bad um, rip on Max Ernst. Um, uh, (laughs) Oh, this surrealist. I mean, usually Dolly comes to the fore when surrealism gets mentioned. Max Ernst used this technique in his work. He was, he was, his mind was a little bit more twisted than Dolly's. I think, you know, there was this problem with a, childhood pet a parrot that died at the same time as his sister died or something he was haunted by the by the what he called lop lop the superior birds this sort of like psychic bird god that that kept intruding into his dreams and things anyways he utilized both collage but he also did a, a technique where that you put the You put oil paint on the canvas and lay a piece of paper or something on top of it and then peel the paper off and it Mm causes all these sort of like patterns and random things. He wasn't the first person. Leonardo da Vinci says in one of his notebooks um, that if you take a sponge and dip it in ink and throw it against a plaster wall, you will see ideas for fantastic landscapes and faces you know what i'm saying we're talking about here about that thing where that you look at a cloud and you see elvis
1: right yeah what is that like uh there's a word for that pareidolia
2: yeah yeah or or in another sense to bring divination into it scry yeah you know you're 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 unfocusing one form of meaning and allowing another form of meaning to take form in it right Um, so I was like, that's curious. They all look like really bad Max Ernst. (laughs) Then a friend of mine um, became very, very interested in it. And he was like, wanted to talk about it and wanted to experiment with it. And so we were working on the fawn project, some together, working on a a film, trying to make a film about the process of the fawn. And uh, so I... Told him I was like, okay, you can we use photographs from this book I made. I made a collage book for the fawn, and it was a pornographic book or erotic art book, pornographic book, made of collage, and I used a
3: some porn magazines from the
2: 90s, I guess, or 80s to to cut up into pieces along with a lot of other things. I cut a very rare Italian book up to make this thing, which probably some, <laughs> somewhere there is a librarian or a book lover who is going to curse me um, <laughs> what I did, but I needed those images. So I cut up a number of things and I assembled this uh, book of images to go with the font, um, the the different the different sections of the fawn each got a page in this book and I just was trying to approach the subject directly from its erotic content because of mm-hmm. pain and the thing so what was interesting is, is that the AI because it wasn't probably a more expensive program eliminated everything pornographic oh yeah you know everything that would have been a human body was turned into something that looked kind of like a statue that had been carved, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of like amorphous, right. nearly an elbow, nearly a shoulder, but no genitals that you could see anywhere. So it curiously censored out all pornography
0: from the thing. They might not be allowed to. Yeah, that's right. not so, yeah. yeah, it's not so but, curious. I think that's what like I, brand, yeah.
2: But what I thought was really curious about it was, is that it did recognize something that I thought might give it pause and that's that I had used collage. And collage mm. means cutting, in this case with scissors. And I'm one of these people who believe in the individual hand, I guess. I could give to you a drawn outline on a piece of paper to each of you. I could draw an outline on a piece of paper and give you a pair of scissors and ask you to cut out that piece, you know, but I wouldn't believe that you would be able to do it to my satisfaction.
1: Sure. sure. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, I would cut it differently. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sure. So I thought, will it recognize that cutting was used, that this was made out of strata that come from different times, different places, different aesthetics, different medias, and different cultural contexts. Will it be able to do that? It was able to recognize to a certain degree, the way that I cut lines. And it did strange things like it made some textures into like star fields or like, you know, like as though you had taken a picture of of the night sky and cut things out of it, but it it did that arbitrarily. It wasn't that I had offered that. It just figured, oh, there's a bunch of speckled stuff It must be star stuff. So it made a lot of mistakes, but it it glommed on to some things that are real about the art that I make. My final conclusion about it is: I have seen no evidence whatsoever for intelligence.
0: Yeah, Ben loves that. Ben yeah. is Ben is like that's. I've a... seen
2: I've seen I've seen fancy mirrors.
0: <laughs> yeah. I,
2: haven't, I haven't seen any intelligence. Yeah, you're ringing
0: Ben's bell there. I don't,
2: and I frankly don't expect to see it either. So,
1: no, we won't. I think people are
0: barking up the wrong tree. They think they're just, yeah, maybe, yeah. I think there's (laughs) there's a lot
2: of People are are so egotistical, too. People are so vain. They think, oh, the machines are going to get smart, then they'll torture us, then they'll take our shit, then they'll do this. If the machines were smart. They'd be like the rest of the aliens. They'd leave this planet alone. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. let stay yeah. out. Of, it'd stay out of our
0: mud. Yeah. You know? um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the opportunity to uh put out another listener question. Um okay. this this question, another macro question. Our listeners are are thinking big on these, but uh this this comes from listener Baz. Um Baz is a listener. Long time listener from Australia, and uh, he's actually sent me um, a Cincinnati journal of magic, which was which is a kind of funny connection. Um, but uh, his question is well, he has two, but this one is more relevant. Um, uh, he's interested to know what you view the future of human bodies, and is there a way? That our bodies can match or prevail in the future over the pervasiveness of digital media? Are we now secondary organisms in a hypermediated social space?
2: We are at present exactly that, at least to the extent when I say we, I'm talking about elitists. We're those people who have electricity and all these devices. It's always important to remember that there are a lot of. There are a lot of beings on this planet that are not dissipating that. It seems to us inside the bubble we're in that we, you know, that that is an all-pervasive and inevitable. The inevitability that we attach to it is another case of it turned up to 11 too much. But I agree with the concept that that speaking maybe just about us, like those of us who are hooked to the computer today Yes that's very true and this question is one that's right at the <clears throat> strikes right at the heart of the work I'm doing too because much of my work does have to do with the body and uh, you know it's uh I even at this point at 64 I still am going to go out on limb and say I am fundamentally a dancer um uh, much of my work has been about dance and has been with dance, and as dancers, and dance is that thing where that the body becomes articulate in the service of art. You know, it becomes articulated in the service of art, and in that sense, it's a utopian project for humanity, and it's one that we're that we're really, really rough at too. We're much, much better at some other things than we are with the body, maybe language and and visual things grabbed holds of the reins and took the run for a long time with humanity and the body is kind of dragged along with it but at every point in time the body has been shaping everything so the body is a little bit different for us now I noticed this amongst my millennial friends and generation x and generation z and and some of the strange little people that I know that haven't even gotten their their title yet, that um, there's very different feelings about the body and what it means and what it does now than what I grew up with. And so I view that as being in a state of flux. We're in a place where that we're starting to think about the body, our bodies in a different way. And maybe starting also try to see where the other systems, the systems like language, where they're being truthful and where they're not being truthful.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, we
2: have our myths that we've that we repeat over and over and over again about things, oftentimes missing what the point of the myth is, and instead focusing on uh the minor details of the myth. You get that in stories like the biblical Adam and Eve, this idea that, for instance, there's a mind-body schism. Is there? Has anyone managed to put a point on it yet? At what place does it happen? You know, and that's the point where the digital thing begins to fail. AI, when it starts talking about, you know, I, I'm trying to remember that um, conversation. There was a conversation that was supposedly with uh AI that was maybe Google or something like that. That was like you could read the whole thing, and it started talking about having heavy feelings. I thought this is such utter bullshit. That's just aping things. How how does how does circuitry have heaviness? Mm. By what right does it use that word? Mm. You know what history of gravity does it have? What history of falling? does it have you know it don't have it don't know nothing about heavy (laughs) don't talk to me about your heavy feelings stop bullshitting me and then i thought oh it isn't bullshitting me it's just repeating what it knows can be said yeah um so i'm kind of feeling the same way about the body i think that we're I think that we're in the infancy, actually, of understanding our bodies, both as uh, as a pl- as a, thing, a site of living, <laughs> uh, a locus of living, and I. What the digital world brings to us so far has been what it uh, what technology always brings to us the second time around. And that's pornography. Yeah, <laughs> and beyond that. To what degree does it do besides kind of keeping us focused in front of it so we don't get as much exercise as we might get? But otherwise, what? I mean, how do we interact with our bodies with this digital thing? It's not that much. I mean, you know, typing. Who thought typing was going to be a big deal? Um, So I think that the artists and thinkers who will... Give some definition to this question that our down under friend has posited for us are yet to evolve you know I think that we're just on the edge of discovering things like that yeah. one, one of the things that was so uh, working on the fawn that was such a revelation to me was the idea of the homunculus <laughs> uh, that um that um, Moshe Feldenkrantz evolved this idea. Do you guys know of his work?
1: No, not. I don't think okay. so.
2: Okay, so Moshe uh was a scientist who was working with Marie Curie, but he took a tangent off, not towards radiation, but towards the body instead. And he developed this idea that um, you can make an image of the the articulation of movement neural of neural pathways in the brain that have to do with movement Mm -hmm. you can make an image of it which you can call a homunculus and it works like this imagine that you're making a humanoid figure okay and you're going to make the the relative size or scale of the parts of the figure are going to correspond to how much articulation of movement that those body parts have. And so the eyes are huge, for instance. The tongue is huge, for instance. The ears are barely there at all. They're not even there. Um, The fingers are very huge. Um, the back and elbows and hips and everything else—not so much. I mean, our toes are not nearly as articulate as our fingers,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so when you start as a, an infant, um, you just sort of wallering around, you know, at first, and then you begin to learn how patterned movement works. You learn how to crawl, let's say you know, and crawling is this coordinated, patterned movement, um, and the neural pathways are are formed that correspond to crawling, and then there's a point you're going to get up and walk, you know, and here's a new rhythmic, patterned movement, and you're also learning all kinds of other things with your hands, your head, with everything, you're learning how to move your body. For most people, Basically, this kind of stops learning and about puberty. At that point in time, you've learned how to walk. You've learned how to sit down, lay down, get up, run, stoop, bend over. You know, you've written the neural pathways for all of those things. But certain people go on due to various drives or uh, demands. They articulate more and more. We could imagine that the the homunculus that showed the fingers of a great pianist would show the hands being even bigger, right? Because you have to be able to make movements that take place within a millisecond,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: right? You know, for each finger. Or maybe a video gamer. You know what I'm saying? Your ability to quickly move a certain finger is something that you have you have made neural pathways in your, in your being that enable you to do this thing. So this homunculus represents articulation of movement. And that led me in the fawn to wonder, okay, can I write new pathways? And that's where the dance work of the fawn began. I was like, Can I stop walking the way I walked before? Can I learn new ways, a new way of walking, a new way of sitting down, a new way of laying down, a new way of standing up? Well, you can. All you have to do is just figure out what the one you have is. Mm -hmm. Do something which is not that. So that was actually the dance work that I did with the other people who were involved in the project was to first clear out how we had been moving and have each person invent a type of movement that they could remember that they could entrain to themselves. And then over an eighth month period of time to do it enough that we were able to switch on and off. Like I did it sometimes in the grocery store. I got subtle enough with the fawns walk that I could switch out of my walk into the Fawn's walk and walk through the grocery store, and no one would even know it. Mm-hmm. So I think that if I'm engaged in doing experiments like that with the body, there are probably a lot of other artists who are working on these things too. And yeah. specifically, people who are involved with the body and with dance. Though maybe it might, won't come from dance, maybe it'll come from another area you know someone working in another zone so i i don't view our technology or our machineries that we have now as next necessarily being an impediment to that maybe they will be a tool that's useful in doing it you know there are people who have been able to look at jinsky's fawn performance of which no video existed by taking the photographs and applying a lot of fancy computer work to them. they've managed yeah. to construct what they think his moves might have been like in that dance. So uh maybe instead careful work with the digital world will actually enhance our ability to have physical experiences in the world. Mm-hmm and maybe yeah. it start maybe it starts with porn.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and when you talk about neural pathways um kind of reminds me of of Timothy Leary and I'm curious did you ever read Timothy Leary was that or like John Lilly um did you ever check any of that stuff out or come across that?
2: Yes, I did. You know, the, more specifically than their work. I remember running into a Back in the eighties, called "Sensitive Chaos," which was about um, about how water, especially things that have that have turbulent, can have turbulence or movement to them. Like, <laughs> there's this deal if you can take like uh, sand and put it on a metal plate, and then uh, have it vibrate the tones of different, different tones on the musical scale mm. form different patterns on the sand. Cymatics.
1: Uh, yeah. Cymatics. Right. Yeah.
2: Or you same thing with flames, you know, you can have a flame and it can be shaped by this, uh, by the forces. Around it. So these are the forces of wind and, and the nature of fluidity to form, uh, mm. you know, turbulence. If you see, uh, fresh water running into muddy water or muddy water running into fresh, you see how it goes outward and forms this like nuclear cloud, right? You mm-hmm. know, it's it resistance and it starts folding back on itself to form a mushroom cloud-like shape. Yeah. Which is what the, I think what the Mayans had in mind whenever they in their glyphs, you see out of people's mouths, you see this this sort of like flowing, flowering, form. Flower. Yeah. That represents speech. Well, it's literally happening. I mean, you know, it's literally in the sound in. in front of you. There's a, a turbulent shape you can't see that's made out of the vibrations of your voice coming out into uh into the realm. So I um that book, which I think is much connected to Leary's work and other things that kind of came out of that um. Uh, that that had an influence. It started me thinking about how there can be invisible things happening around you, which also have aesthetic forms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, maybe that's an idea of ghosts, too. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Have you read uh, The Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram?
2: Mm. No, I haven't read it. I'm taking a note right now. Yeah. A lot of. It's on this line.
1: Well, it's, uh, it's kind of a hard book to explain. It's kind of him taking a, he was like a sleight of hand magician and he was studying among like the sort of like indigenous magicians of, uh, like rural Asia. And he was kind of learning about like their approach to the world. And he kind of, so he ended up trying to write this book about why like Western culture would seemingly purposefully uh, like pollute and destroy its own environment. This was like right around when global warming was becoming like a political issue. So it was kind of like part of that moment. Um, but really the whole the whole book has this structure of being about like language is the reason that we are alienated from, uh, from the world if we are you know that that our culture is sort of alienated from the the you know quote natural world he's um he thinks that it has to do with the development of the non-pictorial alphabets like first written language Mm -hmm. and taking away the oral oral only aspect of communication and language and placing it in first pictorial form was one thing, but then when it was completely divorced from representative meaning, it became an an abstract system entirely. That's sort of when he thinks the the divorce between man and nature happened. It's fascinating. Mm.
2: Well, you know, one thing that immediately comes to mind is a thought that I recently had about uh, hieroglyphs. Mm. Something that I became interested in very very early when i was a child i became fascinated by them i'm still fascinated fascinated by them the egyptian book of the dead was a thing yeah it's like so much fascinated me there was a point where that i began to have this feeling maybe it's because i've worked with translation quite a bit in what i do like i've i i'm not a linguist uh exactly but i have worked at translating some ancient texts because i needed to get to a meaning that i was sure that was there that other translators i just knew they were wrong (laughs) you know i just knew that that was not what was going on there so there's been a lot of like slapdash efforts on my part to translate certain texts um for the for the fawn, I worked on translations from the, some of the Greek texts from Nanus and Sappho and and from Ovid, oh, Roman writer, but uh, about the subject. So you know, and then I while I was working on Secret Commonwealth, there was a period of time that my tea teacher, Chisato Ajiri, and I I needed to translate some po some poetry into Japanese and uh we were close enough and, and aesthetically linked enough in our practice of the tea ceremony that we could kind of go into that zone.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I realized how, how absolutely different languages can be. Like, yeah. how can we be human beings and actually have languages where that people think they can be translated and they think we're all thinking alike but my take on it was no i mean i'm not sure that you'd even recognize that world Mm. you know that if you could be flipped into it that you would recognize it it might it might take a bit but the revelation i had about the hieroglyphs is i think that the egyptians we think that those hieroglyphs are all supposed to be translated to form things like you know there's a picture of a hawk and a picture of a of a bug, and a picture of a snake, and a picture of other thing. You know, a lot of little pictures that form this writing system, and they do form things. They form words, and they form other things. But they're also pictures of that thing. Mm. It isn't translatable. It's not supposed to be a symbol for something else. It's not the eagle represents clear sight you know or flying high or something like that no it's an eagle yeah it is that's the thing that's being communicated to you a direct image of the thing that is important and it's not something to be turned into something else
1: Right. I think, I think you'll find that book really interesting. Um, I
2: will will hunt it down. It sounds great. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. That's yeah. That sort of gray area between what constitutes like a, a pictorial representation of a real thing that you can see in the world. And what, what is a, like a phonetic mark.
2: Obviously this is a huge interest and import to me because This is what I do every day is I create these things, these images. And I know sometimes like people kind of have an approach to it that's, and a lot of people only see a small part of the work I do. Like I'd say almost everyone sees only a small part of it. Like there are people who follow what I, my work as a painter, and they don't know that I compose. Mm -hmm. They don't see how those things would be related. They wouldn't understand that my work with with like herbs and plants is also a thing, you know. And a lot of other things that I'm working just wouldn't fit. Instead, they're just focused on painting. So I mean, one time my older brother asked my mom, it's like, said, is Dan depressed? Because he uses a lot of dark colors in his paintings. And I would never have thought of linking those things together in a sure. mood. I would never have thought of it. Colors don't do that for me. I don't like pick dark blue because it's going to cause a mood of depression. You know, sure. it's because I'm, I, I've fallen in love with dark blue. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not signifying something else. And that's kind of true of like that. The image of the blackbird singing on the thing, yeah, you can put all kinds of stories onto it and nobody puts more narratives onto things than I do. I'm definitely a narrative maker. But even the narratives themselves are just plain things. There they are. They don't stand for something else. Mm. Just revealing what I saw,
0: Mm. what I feel about it. Maybe we can uh pivot back to Dark Dan from there as you talk mm-hmm. about darkness and, and uh dark blue and depression. Um a good good one. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not <laughs> such a I'm such a, becoming such a pro uh podcaster here, but uh yeah, I'm I'm curious, um you know, because I think that so much of what you know the blanket term spirituality and stuff that is influencing your work and your practice, um always comes off as very positive. Um, and I, I'm curious if you've ever felt kind of like a malevolence of, of otherness, um, maybe an unwanted like intrusion of, of malevolence from, you know, the spirit realm.
2: I think Yates said, um, I can't remember, uh, I'm paraphrasing and wrong with saying this, like um, so many terrors. Yeah. Seven terrors have I seen, and the worst was a coat hanging on a coat hanger. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, when I speak about the the harmony and harmoniousness in my work, I definitely don't want to leave out. It's just that people seldom see those things that uh, that where that I directly portray the the terrible mainly through just the basics of economics and how my ecosystem here works in terms of like how dandelion exists. Part of it is, is because like a, uh, an ant or a bee or something other, I have to constantly make honey. You know, mm-hmm. I, have, I have to make honey all the time for this, this world that I'm in to exist for myself to exist as an artist. I have to make honey and here in Danialland it's it's it, there's like a dead there's an almost deadly temptation here. If I paint flowers they will sell. So I often say, you know, painting flowers for me is like printing money. But <laughs> uh, this is a very dangerous path, you know. I love flowers and I love painting flowers. I you know, I also love a lot of other things like genitalia, for instance. The one's not going to sell as well as the other. Uh, That I understand. I understand the flowers will sell. So my thin line I have to walk is, yes, luckily I love the flowers and I grow them here and I paint them and people enjoy them and people buy them because they want that feeling of joy and freshness and life or whatever they attach to them. Maybe their mother loved this kind of rose, you know, and so they want that painting of it because it's a keepsake and it represents a certain thing. And they're, they're fresh and positive and uh, in a world where that some people visualize there's a lot of dark, I mean, a lot of bad feelings, used the term dark, but a lot of things that are maybe unsettled or not beautiful, they feel like so. They like these images of beauty that I create. And I do like creating images of beauty. I don't try to create anything deliberately ugly. I've done some, I've done some very strange things because the demands of the work have taken me there. But I do like the I do like to create beautiful images. So what do I do when I was working on the ballad project? It seemed all nice enough, you know, that I would these Traditional songs that I heard first as a child and then became really interested in and learned more and more of them. They're narratives that tell about the worst things that human beings can do to each other. And I was going to make them into visual imagery, right? Because I saw them in my mind as visual images when I heard. I have synesthesia out the wazoo. So um, I, I could see those things. It was one thing starting out with it, but at a certain point I can remember this when I was working on the ballad project and I was working on these 36 ballads and I, my idea was I was going to paint one a night for 36 nights and rather than being taking a long period of time like the big ballad paintings where I it took months for me to do them, I would do them just in the amount of time it took me to sing the ballad, I would paint with ink which is very quick and very direct, you know? And I would do the most iconic image from each ballad that I was trying to sing. And then I hit The Cruel Mother. The Cruel Mother is where this woman uh, courted her father's clerk, gets pregnant, goes out in the woods, has triplets. She leans her back against a, a thorn and there she had three fine babes born. Um, she had a penknife, knife, keen and sharp, and with it pierced each baby's heart. Um, she wiped the penknife knife on her shoe. The more she wiped, the bloodier it grew. You know, sort of like uh, Lady Beth's hands in that regard. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, that's the iconic image. You've got three newly murdered, stabbed babies. And someone wiping a knife on their shoe. And that's what you want to put in the painting. So, how are these babies going to fit in there? Like, put them in a pile, lay this one on that one, make sure you can see they're all stabbed. Uh, Then the knife and the shoe. I was like, this is what am I doing here? You know, I'm seeing, I'm conjuring up something and seeing that I never hoped I would see. Uh, and I never dreamed I would see, actually. Now, I know people who, you know, who, like, for instance, love horror movies or or comic books or whatever, are much accustomed to gruesome things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one thing to have gruesome fantasies where you can play all you want, you know, and nobody gets hurt. And it's another thing to face those things directly, like I haven't seen any stabbed babies in a pile, but, you know, I've I've been on hand for the birth of animals where the babies died right off the bat. So I've seen that and it's not, that's not a fun thing to see. It's not what I would call beautiful, but it is true. And that's how it works its way into the art. So I would say in what I do, I try to make sure there's a lot of beauty and there's enough truth that you know that I'm not untethered completely mm. from it. But a lot of times people just don't see the dark imagery. I use that term dark again, advisedly. Sure. but the, the images that are of dire things because I don't make as many of them and the opportunities to show them are infrequent. I mean, I just wouldn't want to to scar the eyes of my innocent Facebook followers. You know, that's the main social media thing. I, I'm not an artist who courts controversy. I don't want to get where I'm going by shocking people and getting them to buy shocks from me. Mm-hmm. If I was going to shock people and get them to buy shocks, I'd just get me a cattle prod and ask them to line up.
0: can we quote you on that yes (laughs) yeah absolutely um so yeah maybe we can talk shop a little bit um about some of your music and you know i met with you last summer i had the pleasure of meeting with you in kentucky uh at Dandelion and you told me the story of, of one of my favorite songs of yours called The Waves. Um, I thought that was just an incredible story, and I would love it if you could recount that for our listeners, but I would also love it if you could talk about uh, the fall record that you had put on digital streaming services and maybe what the process was for that, because I thought that was a great window into the musical side of your work uh, for people.
4: Waves break the ocean night, pounding a drum call, and the moon's pack of tide tongues lay orbs of jet and basalt in the spray. Thumb. rises, breathes, and sinks into the sea, rings of water spread.
2: Yeah, it's
1: so good. Oh,
2: uh, let me talk about Waves first. Um, you know, Waves is the beginning, the opening for Love and Time, which is the third one of the operas in the secret commonwealth. The, it took me quite a while to get an opera. I mean, I was aiming towards it from the time I was 14 years old forward. I was like, I want to be an opera composer. I don't really like opera, but I know this is it. Um <laughs> So when I was 29, the, the stone man came out, the first opera actually came out and um, I was like, okay, I am, mean, I can do this in fact, because I I composed a lot over that 15 year period or something like that. But none of it seemed like it was, you know, I was throwing a lot of shit at the wall, but not much was sticking. Mm-hmm. And finally, something stuck. And uh, um, so I sort of understood then how to make what I was going to make. And immediately, sort of like comically at one level, because of Wagner, you know, I was aware of Wagner and his ring cycle. It's even got connections to my own Germanic ancestry in one sense. But this idea is like bloated, gigantic. Mm thing you know that was like mythology I and mean, it was like you took a huge orchestra and you had to build a special building for it and, and you know wear a dressing gown
0: the gush Stumpstein work yeah
2: all that stuff yeah. i was like okay i'm just gonna take this if i'm taking on the opera world i'm just gonna take on that and i'm gonna do of you know I'm going to sum up everything in a four part cycle that, it's, that is about how the imagination works. And I'm going to figure out what the categories are for it. And then I'm going to figure out all the subcategories for it. And I'm going to organize the thing into a giant structure, which will be the meaning of everything. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, you know, I dived into that. The first opera it was about. The Imagination Memories of Childhood. The second one was about how that we imagine life as being like a journey, like a path or a journey. And the third opera, which is called Love and Time, was about how we imagine love and time as being inextricably connected to each other. Like, as a matter of fact, about the only way we have of talking about love is trying to talk about time. It's like it lasts forever, you know what I'm saying, or or it doesn't. It's a one night stand. Uh, it has to do. It's it's how much how real it is. Is love somehow or another winds up getting connected to time? So I had my conceit there of approaching it, and my idea was to to look at this really based on that. Um, old uh, romance or ballad, Thomas the Rhymer. T- Thomas the Rhymer was a man who met the Queen of the Elves and she took him um, to Elfland and then brought him back to mortal lands and left him with a parting gift of a tongue that could only speak the truth, which made him at once a poet, a prophet, and as he feared, unable to court a woman or to do business um, with any man. Um, <laughs> so I thought, okay, this idea of our imagination takes us to another world. That's what I'm gonna look at in this. And so there has to be an entrance there, right? To this other world. And in the the romance, They travel through um, for seven days and seven nights through riding on a horse through red blood to the knee um, before they come to Elfland. So it's over this ocean or this gulf that you travel to reach the other world. And um, once I had that, I was like, I began looking in my own mm-hmm. life to where this place, where this took place. And for me, it took place one night when I was camping in on one of the reservations on the Olympic peninsula. And this is the Northwest Coast. Do you know the area? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like you know, there's the outer coastline there, there's a number of reservations, the Macaw Reservation, the Quinault. Anyway, I was. Camping there at the top of a cliff that was, went down to the ocean below. And um, just like in this, you know, old uh, rainforest that's on the top of the cliff, huge trees and all of this fabulous moss and beautifulness. And this cliff plunged down, and here's this wild rocky coastline and all this ocean coming in there. And I, I was in ecstasy. I thought, this has to be the most fabulous place on earth. I'm very Piscean come back to astrology, (laughs) very connected to this ocean and the sea. So just the thought of, I was going to get to sleep there and listen to this ocean all night long was fabulous. But as it turned out, a huge storm came and it was not only a storm, but it was a full moon. So it was a high tide and a full moon and a storm all at one time. And all through the night while I was laying in this little tent It was like rumbling. The ground was rumbling and moving under me. I could feel it as the waves were bashing against the cliff and ripping these gigantic trees off of the the shoreline and tumbling them around in the surf until the next morning, everything was made into spindles. They were polished into spindles everywhere. But anyway, I lay there all night just entranced, listening to this fabulous sound of the elements just in their what in their primal hour. Um, and the next morning, when I could go down to the tide went out and I could go down to the beach and see how all this these trees and everything had been polished into spindles everywhere by being churned in the ocean all night. And it was amazingly a double rainbow, (laughs) too. Uh, The whole thing was just like, there is nothing, there is nothing more, no more fabulous portal than that, right? You go through a double rainbow through a storming ocean. And that's where, you know, in that song, there are lines you hear like, some of it's kind of hard to make out. The moon's pack of hide tongues lathe orbs of jet and basalt in the spray. So the idea that the moon would have like a pack of of wolves or hounds whose tongues would lick stones until they were polished into orbs. Um, To me, I was just trying to compress all the power, elemental powers into this like extreme state um, and recapture that mood of ecstasy that I had from hearing and experiencing those things. So um, this other thing that was a strange thing about composing that is I had bought a harpsichord to compose that opera on. So I use a system of bands a lot to do my art. Like I band things, like the, after I did the Stone Man, when I started the Secret Commonwealth, I was like, you composed for you know, two years using the piano. You can't use the piano anymore. No more. You won't be a composer who's a piano composer. You can compose another opera if you want to, but you're not allowed to play the piano or use the piano. You can use a drum. You can use a banjo. You can use anything you want, but you can't use piano anymore. It's like a way of pushing myself forward into, you know, a new zone. So I had gotten a harpsichord, an instrument I had wanted all my life, and I was... I was ill-prepared. Luckily, I found one cheap enough I couldn't afford. Uh, I had to learn how to tune it, you know. I brought it home. First, I couldn't play it at all. I thought, this is a terrible mistake. I can't believe I spent all this money on this thing, because I can neither play it nor sing with it. But after time of fooling around with it, I finally found like a sound I could make on it, and that was that song. I, Figured that song out first on it. Waves was first figured out on the harpsichord. And uh, I didn't sing it in the opera. And it's neat thing, although I love the song and I wanted to sing it real bad, it's a problem. You know, being actually in the ensemble myself, I wanted to sing all of the songs because I love them. And it was hard giving them to other singers. But the percussionist I work with, uh, Bob Douglas, this such a wonderful musician. When he went to school, he went, he wanted to be an opera singer. And the, you know, the music department, had called him up to his office and asked him why he was, why he was, you know, studying voice. And he said, because he wanted to sing in an opera. And I said, well, you'll never be able to do that. So you need to change your major. Lo and behold. He changed to percussion, you know. And that's how he wound up being the percussionist in the ensemble. But I knew that he wanted to sing, you know, and he had a good voice. Too, so. so I thought, okay, this is one of those times whenever magic, Dan has the magic. I can make this happen. <laughs> you know, he can sing in an opera. So I gave him that song, you know, the first one in the, wasn't the only time he sang in the ensemble but i gave him that song to sing that's oh, so cool. awesome yeah i really i really i really love the i really love the song um a lot one of the things that um i kind of missed in the live performance which is the one that you've heard in the recorded performance i played the biwa on it which is a japanese lute and mm. the whole story connects into, to the steel of the ocean and the waves and this other world. It was, I'm not a Wa player, but one of the world's great musicians, a great (laughs) (laughs) BWA player, Wa maker, made one for me. Oh, nice. You know? And so I thought, I've got to use this thing. (laughs) I have to learn to use it. And I learned to play uh, just a brief line in that song, you know, it, in the first recording I made of it, the studio recording, I played the Biwa on it, and it's about all I got out of it. It was so neat, too, because when Mr. Ohashi, the Biwa player who made it for me, when he heard it, it was like, I don't understand how you get it to make those sounds.
0: <laughs> I know the recording is, is the same vocalist on the studio recording. No, no, I,
2: I, I sang it on the studio record. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah.
0: And that's the one I heard first, and then you, you'd show Oh, me the uh, uh, okay, cool, cool. Um, yeah, I, I love I,
2: I I think that's, that. one other thing I'd say about that song is that really, a lot of times, I do the work, and all of this other sort of like foam or fluff comes up above the work and that's my explanations and stories and narratives that i attached to the thing and one of the things i tried to one of the ways i tried to rationalize what i was doing with love and time was by thinking about how that shakespeare had written two fairy plays you know there's a uh, midsummer Night's Dream and there's the tempest both of these works are really important to me. You know, I studied both of them really carefully, and I thought, what if, what if Shakespeare was like um, um, Robert Kirk, the, mm-hmm. the you know who was supposedly abducted into elf land, you know, yeah. and then came back as a ghost saying, if you throw a knife over the, t- the dirk over the top of me, I'll be freed from it. And they were so startled that nobody did it
0: and so he was doomed you know trapped in fairyland trapped in
2: fairyland forever i thought what if that had happened to shakespeare too because after all by writing those two plays the tempest and midsummer night's dream he did one of the things that supposedly the good people don't like and that's people telling mm-hmm. and, you know talking a lot about their stuff um so i was like what if they abducted him and he was trying to write the third in his trilogy of fairy plays through me, which is the only human being that was, you could get connected from the other side to, to do it. And I'm like the worst person, you know, like the least suitable person.
0: to Like the, the gibberish planchette.
2: Yeah. The, the gibberish planchette. Yeah. Shakespeare's <laughs> desperate. He's trying to get his third fairy play out and Holly's got
0: to work with his me. Uh, that's, that's comic have you ever heard of um there's a book uh that we we kind of just we'll talk about like not too much talk about i've never read it but uh it's a it's a spiritualist novel that is it's called jap heron and it's um supposed to be the last great work by mark twain but it's channeled through the ouija board by um some spiritualist writers i hear the
2: spirits won't aim talk to Mark Twain at all because he's such a fucking racist. <laughs>
0: here you go. <laughs> yeah, I'm cu- uh, I'm curious about that one. Um
2: Huh, I haven't heard of that, but I'll check it out. I definitely will check that out. I
1: read Channel, it myself. Channel novels. I yeah. I love yeah, that yeah. stuff.
0: Uh I love the arc in uh in waves of the great Leviathan kind of like dissipating back into the water and just rippling out i feel like that in itself is kind of this like musical rainbow
2: that was so real too because that morning whenever i was climbing down to to climb down to the beach there i was like going sort of all this bluff edge and there was an inlet that came in i was going along the side of it and the i could see the water in the inlet it wasn't that far from me i'm gonna say maybe just like 20 yards or something the surface of the ocean was there and something I don't know what it was you know there are a lot of marine animals out there I don't know whether it was a whale I think it must have been a a whale instead of a seal though it just was it was too big to be a seal but I just saw this part of a back emerge you know out of the water and then go under and this feeling like you know I just feel like my solar plexus something's connected if I'm being drawn uh, drawn down by it too, just by seeing its motion as it dived under the water. There, I only saw just the back, the ridge of the back of some great sea creature, you know, going under. I thought, ah,
0: that's so wonderful. <laughs> you avoided the uh, the siren song.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I've 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 dealt with that in other places. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, oh. I have a song called The Siren Song. Mm.
0: Uh,
2: uh, yeah, I couldn't possibly miss that one. A lot of mermaid stuff in my life.
0: So, how did the how did the recording of uh the Fawn that you had released in 2022 come together?
2: Mm, this one is gonna be a little more complicated to explain. You know, I had just finished the ballad project and uh at twenty one c museum, and um I made some money. I sold paintings there that you know it was like just kind of a at that point kind of a career high point in many ways uh it was a big show, and it turned out good, and I left it with some cash because I had sold some paintings and I thought I looked at what I had and I thought, you know what uh, I have enough to survive on because I I live like a mouse anyways. I have have enough to survive a year on without hitting a lick of a snake. Um, And so I can do anything I want artistically now. You know, I don't even have to paint a flower. I can just do anything. And I thought, all right, well, then I'm going to do something I really want to do. Myself that maybe other people are not interested in, but I'm interested in it. And I want I wanted to look at Greek mythology because I have been dealing with a lot of comparative mythology working on the secret commonwealth. The idea behind the secret commonwealth is is this something that pretty much every mythology on earth has it? And if they if all the mythologies have it, then I'm gonna put it in this thing as well so I I dealt with a lot but not Greek mythology which was one of the first ones I came to as a child and so I thought you know I was doing a lot of research on all these projects and I thought I'm sure that there were new books that had been written new ideas that had come out about both the archaeology the the mythology the ethnology about the Greek myths so I'm just going. I'm going to catch up on everything. I'm going to focus on something very small and very distinct, not a big sweeping thing like these ballads, um, but exactly something that had been very interesting to me, and that was Nijinsky's performance of the Fawn uh, to Debussy's Prelude de Midi du. On in 1911. Um, which was the Ballet Russe, Diaghilev's Ballet Russe. So, and that stemmed from a a poem by Stefan Malame on the same subject. So it seemed like this convergence of these three artists, one a musician, one a dancer, one a poet, this trifecta would be something that would, an entrance that I could use to look at what is what is Pan? What are the nymphs? What is the fawn? Is, where is that at? What is it? And uh, at the same time, in another aspect of my life, I had a weird, there was just a weird thing that happened because Kentucky's governor, um, Governor Collins, because she had set up, uh, Martha Lane Collins had set up this deal with Toyota to have a factory in Kentucky. The Japanese people sent some gifts to Kentucky. And one of the gifts was to send three no masters to her alma mater, uh, Georgetown University, to teach the first classes in no that were taught outside of Japan. And, there was no one there to take them besides people taking Japanese language course, but I found out about it and I went and I studied under one of these no masters for, for a week. It was one of the hardest weeks of my life Um, is very, very challenging. Um, So I learned this ritual, this dance, which the no theater is a mask dance form that originally originated from a rice harvest ritual it was originally a thing sort of like perpetuate the the gods of the rice harvest um and but in any event it was a ritualized mask dance and uh much about pattern very much about pattern and uh i went through the Thing, that's what I was going to use as my foundation for how I would understand movement in it but when it came to the music I didn't have any thoughts of utilizing no music uh, as wonderful as it is but I thought all right well I think for me maybe this is club electronica because I was in the early club music world mostly in Europe that I went club dancing you know it's just like the Early electronic club dance music, and I thought, all right, isn't the dance club the place where this these Dionysic mm-hmm. dance rites of the modern world take place? I mean, that's that seemed to be the place for me. So I thought, okay, that does it. Um, I'm going to use, you know, electro club as my genre because. I'm like a genre slut, I guess. I don't really have a genre. I use genres when they're the right color. You know, when I need that color, that's what I use. So that seems the right one. And I, for that, you need an instrument, of course. And I had a Triton workstation keyboard that I, I don't remember exactly how I came to have this Triton. Anyways, it's I don't know if you know synthesizers very much. Yeah, this yeah. is a digital synthesizer. And it had built into it a sequencer that had all of the sort of like uh drum patches, bass patches, string patches, clarinet patches, horn patches, everything you could imagine pretty much digital samples that had been analyzed, you know, and converted into digital form. And uh, they also had a lot of sequence loops, loops like drum beats. Like there were probably 40 rap beats that were in this in this thing loaded into it. There were some Chinese popular music things. This had been programmed by a Japanese programmer, you know? There was probably a bunch of Japanese programmers who were like, what is popular music in the world today? Uh, you know? Oh, there's a lot of rap. Anyways, they had all of these sort of like prefab sequences built into the machine. But what was strange was I discovered after I started getting into the programming innards of it and messing around with it is that they had divided things into things like Latin beats and things that couldn't be neatly divided into four, four into fours, they divided in they had it as threes. So rather than having, it was almost like there were two synthesizers in one. One of them had every patch and every sequence for threes. And the other one had every patch and every sequence for fours. Rather than try to come up with some universal system that could work with with, uh, symmetry and asymmetry in the same time, they had sort of made two machines in one and they didn't plan on anybody getting those two sides confused with each other, but there was a way you could do it. Um, there was a way that you could cause the instrument set up for the threes to play the fours instead and vice versa. And it would sound chaotic, but if you dialed up and down the tempo, there would be one speed in the whole thing where that they would fall into a new rhythm it wouldn't be either threes or fours. It would be something else, you know. It would sound like falling downstairs, but you could tune, tune, tune. And then suddenly there would be something. So I was like, oh, this is the way I'll find this thing. This is the ghost in this machine. You know, this is the fluke. They didn't intend for it to be done this way. So this is the way I'm going to do it. And that's how I found the basic cells that would make the thing. And then what I did was, is I you could program eight voices for any one setup that you did. So I figured out how to make all of the loops and all the sequences be triggered by ten fingers. And the weird thing about it was, is that I played everything. You know, everything you hear on that recording is live. It's a live performance.
0: That's insane.
2: And there isn't any way that it could be otherwise because much to my engineer's despair, you could not split those things back up into, ah. into eight MIDI outs. You just got the whole cosmos in
0: one. Can I, can I interrupt you real quick? Cause that, yeah, this this is very interesting to me. Um, there's a musician who I revere very much. I'll try and keep this short, but his name's Rod Keith. Uh, he was actually involved in this industry of music called song sharking, where uh, mm-hmm. in old magazines, people would send in their lyrics um, and this guy would make them into records for like 75 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of like a ripoff thing, but these, these weird, very weird songs. Yeah. Yeah. These very weird songs and records came out of it. But this guy, um, what he was so amazing for was that he took the Mellotron
3: mm, and uh, he,
0: and he would put um, entire tracks on each tape loop of the Mellotron and he would just squeeze out like 75 songs in a session. Oh, like this is like, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that is pretty much, that's a, another
2: way to go about it. But yeah, I can see how that's very much the same thing. It was weird because the keys had, uh, you know, they, they were touch sensitive and they had a function where you could press them and then second press and you'd get another thing to happen. So like, as long as i made the chord changes ex- really precisely with my fingers and then like moved the fingers again on it, I could cause other instruments to come in and play the various parts. It was a mnemonic. It was a memnonic nightmare <laughs> actually, but it enabled me to like, totally go into sort of like that club music world all by myself huh. and in live time too, you know, not something that's, I've done a lot of, of studio constructions where you're laboriously making a mosaic, you know, you're putting in one track and another track and another track and you're adjusting everything. This was not like that at all. It was really almost, I, I felt like that. I was like, um, the, it was almost like a, driving a vehicle instead of playing a a machine, you know, it it felt like that you were traveling somewhere by accurately doing it. So that's how I, that's how I did the music. And it was done. It was done a period of time when, um, too, I didn't, um, I couldn't get very much time to work on the music. So it was, The nice thing about it was is that I didn't, it was the first time I did a project where I didn't use live musicians in performance. Instead, I was using a pre-recorded thing. So I I concentrated with the fawn on, we we did the performances of the fawn. There were only three performances done of it. Well, four if you count a workshop that was done, but the three performances were done in art museums and they were pretty much back to back. There were two performances done in one University Museum and then I had to move the whole show in a single day the gauze box and all of the Sonics and everything to another museum and do two performances there but by doing that and having a crew of only uh, four people, I was able to to pull off more than I could have pulled with the Secret Commonwealth Ensemble, which was 30 people.
0: Mm. Did you overdub the the vocals on the phone? Um, I did overdub
2: the. Some of them were were recorded live with them, and some of them were overdubbed in it. It's incredible.
0: Yeah. I I would have never, I would have never thought that that was a live, or like the instrumentation was a live recording. That's talk to amazing.
2: Talk to my engineer sometime. And he just <laughs> when he finally realized there was no way. There was no way we could do it other than just recording it like that with a single mic, you know? So you can't adjust the, you can't do any uh, adjustment of the drum sound vis-a-vis the bass sound or anything like that. You just, you get just what you EQ,
0: did. Yeah, just, EQ is yeah, you, the best
2: you got that's, there. That's all you can do with it. And you know what he did in order to get around that? He meticulously learned to play some lines in it, and stripped it out and replayed them himself note by note, duplicating what I had done so that he could manage to mix
0: them. which I thought was an act of real devotion, actually. That's crazy. Wow. I'm glad I asked. Well, yeah, That's list- fascinating. your
2: listeners may not be so glad. <laughs> no,
0: no, I know. I mean, if they listen, listen to the record, which they definitely should, um, hmm. Yeah, that's that's pretty marvelous achievement.
2: The the thing I love about, um, actually, about that. I mean, every method that you might take to convey your music to another person is going to have some problematics to it and some snafus to it. Like, I, I I myself am kind of shy about music. Like, if you and if the three of us were in a room and I had a guitar. And I was supposed to play one of my songs for you. It would be excruciating for me. I'd nearly die <laughs> of the vulnerability that's involved because I'm a trance. I'm a trance musician. I go into a trance whenever I'm. I guess that's the word for it. I'm definitely not there um, in some ways. So um, it seems very vulnerable to me. Give me fifty people, or a hundred people, or a thousand people. Uh, and I'm just I'm as easy and smooth as can be with it. Give me one person, two persons, three persons in a room, and it about kills me. Yeah. Um, but what I like about the fawn is that it feels so much inside a the dance was inside a gauze box, and that piece of music is inside that machine, you know, and it's like you're inside a bubble whenever you experience it. if you really if you put on headphones and you go into that world of the fawn, it's uh it just seems like marvelously syn- synthetic to me. Like you're in a you're in a place where the, the you know everything has been made out of nothingness <laughs> but it's all solid. Mm. So um I still enjoy listening to it. you know it's been some years, but I do enjoy it and uh i never worked that way again and i probably won't ever work that way Hmm.
0: so interesting wow yeah i would have thought that there were like several players on that record no and you know what's crazy about it too is that there are
2: i did do two musical overdubs there are two real guitars that are played on in that recording um and they're they're in two separate pieces. Uh, one is acoustic guitar and one is electric guitar but I think it has some of my very best guitar writing in it, electric guitar writing and it's all fake it's like it's joy sticks and, and and knobs and you know, wasn't just playing the keys I had to play the knobs a lot on that synthesizer too as well mm-hmm. all the filters and things on it so, but, but it just seemed like kind of funny thing to me i i love i i I love guitar music obviously and uh, i really love the electric guitar Uh, sometimes i'm doing a project where i can play it sometimes i'm doing a project where i that's not the thing to play at all um and that one was kind of funny in that i think it's got a lot of great electric guitar parts in it and none of them are real
0: they're all so uh (laughs) I'm no stranger to electronic music, but yeah, that's, that's, I, I just wouldn't have made that out. Um, that's pretty great. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to inject uh, maybe our final listener question. And this is the deepest one of all. So I hope you're great, ready great. for this. it's pretty hey, long, gonna, long. It's long. I was going to ask this show. one. I was, oh, okay. Okay. I was, okay. was born for this question. You want to ask this listener question, Ben? Yeah. Okay, got it
1: uh what's your favorite dessert
2: oh wow (laughs) Mm.
0: that's a okay we need to put a new tape in for this one
2: (laughs) this is kind of this kind of i'm just gonna choose something because this i'm a person that comes from a world of seasonality so you'd have to ask me what's the best day to have a dessert on and then <laughs> what's the because things change here so coming yeah. up pretty soon here is going to be wild black raspberries and a wild black raspberry pie is pretty high up on my list of things maybe it's not my absolute favorite but I think my ever, favorite dessert would involve fruit instead of instead of chocolate mm. or even just sugar. Although Damn. I do love sugar pie um, <laughs> and a lot of other things. But um, I'm going to say just for now in my fantasy world, because it's coming soon, I hope, a wild black raspberry pie. Mm. Unfortunately, I won't be able to have it with a dollop of whipped cream in it because, due to long COVID, apparently I have developed a profound allergy to milk. Wow. And this, is like, this is like heartbreaking. Yeah, that is. I won't do a lot of crying and whining about it, but just to say this came at the point where I was really starting to feel good about how good I was at making pastry. And most of the pastry making I was doing involved butter. Mm. And so now I'm having to rethink dessert actually. If you want to know what the latest dessert I had was, it was it is a shoe fly pie. Have you ever had that?
0: I have not. What is yeah, what I'm that's forgetting a, now what it is, but that's a,
2: that's a Pennsylvania Dutch dessert. You know, there's an the old song that said um, shoe fly pie. An apple pen dowdy makes your tongue stick out and your belly say howdy. <laughs> Shoe fly pie is a pie that's sort of like a magic pie in a way. You make a crust, you mix up molasses and water and baking soda and pour this liquid in the, it's 50 50 molasses and water and with some baking soda and you pour it in the crust. And then you put a crumble that's made of butter and flour, in this case, vegan butter, um, flour and uh, sugar, like a like a coffee cake would have a crumble on the top of it. Mm. Put it all over this and then the thing cooks in it. The top part is like a coffee cake and the bottom part is like a pecan pie. Wow. That sounds good. It is good. good I made one yesterday,
0: so. And that's my, my favorite is is pretty close, but I'm I'm a huge fan of a really good strawberry rhubarb pie.
3: Oh
2: yes. <laughs>
0: oh man. Now I'm gonna
2: backtrack on the black raspberry.
0: Ben? Uh, I, I haven't
2: I, I do have an advice for that if you don't do it already. If you put an excess of cardamom and nutmeg in it, like a full heaping teaspoon of each. Which is a lot to put in something. Oh, that, I think that bumps the strawberry
0: rhubarb up. Interesting. Wow.
1: Oh, I didn't even come prepared for this question. For me, uh, well, if it's if it's a really really good one, it's hard to beat flan. Oh. Oh
2: yeah, definitely, definitely. I, a, I, <laughs> I agree. A, yeah. I, I have a request from my Veracruz friend Chano who just asked me to make the flan. Uh. It's coming up, and I've got to figure that one out, I guess, using almond or oat milk. As mm. a, I mean, I'll make it for him out of out of milk and cream if need be, because um, it doesn't kill me to eat it. Um, but uh, mm. I am curious if I can manage to make it out of a nut milk that will be fit to eat, you know. Ooh, yeah. good flan is a good thing.
1: Good flogs.
2: All right. Well, the, the next time that we're all in one space together, uh, I will shall endeavor to make at least one or more of these desserts. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sounds excellent. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm I'm really hoping that we can get together and have a couple beers and eat some desserts. Uh, you know where Daniel is. So no better venue <laughs> for sure.
2: Next time you're here,
0: uh, we'll do it.
1: Yeah, I got to get out there sometime.
0: Maybe um, me and Ben will take a little road trip. You know, yeah. it's, it's, I used to say
2: that it's a lot like Disneyland, only smaller and more tastefully done. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm afraid to say that now, lest some Ron DeSantis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> will, shut it down. Well, <laughs> pop up and shut me down. <laughs> uh, uh. Uh.
0: <laughs> well, I guess we'll, uh, we'll cut it there for now. Uh, but, Thanks so much for joining us again, Dan. It's always a pleasure. So many amazing insights in there. And yeah, truly incredible. Thank you so much for joining us again.
2: It's really a huge pleasure. Uh, we were talking about science a little bit earlier. And to me, this is science because science is discourse. You know, yeah. it's a it's talking about what you believe. That's what it's about you give your you give your theories you give your ideas to it and i appreciate what you guys are doing and uh ha- and and having this kind of sol- cyber salon yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where, <laughs> where that ideas can be presented and discussed and, and uh, it's always interesting and a pleasure to me and i always come away from it with new things to ponder so i appreciate it very much and 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 uh, and appreciate very much your your listeners too, the people that are out there. My greetings to you all and I hope I hope that you enjoyed it. It was good. Look me up if you're in my part of the digital universe or if you happen to be in southern Kentucky in Dandelion itself.
0: Amen. All right. Well, thanks as always for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Okay, great. Bye.
2: Okay.
5: I will grow and kill ten thousand Said the tiny fire drake in my hand Lay this land to waste With my teeth on the bones of the heroes Blood will flow For the gold that I will gather Blood will flow For the gold that I will gather Look into my eyes, he said Where the point of fire is dancing What you hear you won't remember Funny salamander, I will fly through the night scorching cities. I will fly through the night scorching cities. Coins and crowns will make my bed will taste the tears of a virgin in a cave i'll coil my rings crust my scales with the diamonds glitter take your chance crush me now and claim your glory take your chance crush me now and claim your glory sand and then I watched it scurry on the strand the waves were pounding A dragon song as I went walking dream your dreams by the sea I will not harm you dream your dreams by the sea I will not